I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast. The nation reacted to the shooting of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in 2012 with protests, rallies, and marches. Since then, issues of racial inequality and oppression have taken center stage, making professors Darren Graves and Scott Sider wonder just how schools were helping young people make sense of it all. They followed students in five mission-driven urban high schools over four years to get some understanding on how education can foster critical consciousness. What they discovered was there's a lot of different ways educators can create this space for students and that it can even change their outcomes. I asked them what they mean when they say schooling for critical consciousness. When we say schooling for critical consciousness, we're asking like how are schools facilitating the process to help students analyze, navigate, and challenge oppression. And I think our central research question as we sort of began this project together was, well, well what role can schools and educators play in, in supporting the critical consciousness development of, of youth of color? We sort of assumed that this work was taking place in various ways in, mm. in different types of schools. And, and our goal was to, to think a little bit more systematically about it and look for schools that had practices related to helping kids analyze forces of oppression like racism, schools that had practices and programming in place to, to engage young people in thinking about how to navigate issues of racism and racial injustice, and schools that were explicitly engaged in, in helping young people learn how to challenge racism and racial injustice. We assumed there were going to be different ways this could look. Um, because we know that there's lots of, you know, reasonable debate about what this should look like, how it can happen, can it happen in schools. And so we pretty much assumed that there was going to be a, a variety of ways this could look. And we definitely didn't go in there thinking that we were going to find the way to do this. Scott mentioned before that we were very aware that teachers are going to be in many different types of contexts. And so we were very interested in seeing those different kinds of contexts and assuming that there was going to be different kinds of success in those contexts. And to even sort of push that even further, we we explicitly sought out schools that took different pedagogical approaches mm-hmm. to to doing their work. You know, one of the schools in our project was an expeditionary learning school. Um, another had named itself after Paulo Freire and was explicitly utilizing Freire's sort of problem-posing approach to education. Another school in our study belonged to the Coalition of Essential Schools and used sort of a habits of mind approach. And, and our goal, as Darren said, was not to identify the school that was doing the best job at fostering youth critical consciousness, but rather to see what types of practices were happening in these different contexts that educators could benefit from. What really struck you as, wow, this is really amazing and can be transferable outside of here? We want to talk about a few of those examples. Sure. And I should say that our goal in this project was to follow Mm -hmm. the young people at these five schools from their first day of freshman year Mm -hmm. to their last day of senior year with the goal of sort of understanding how their critical consciousness changed over four years of high school and then sort of identifying schooling practices that contributed to that. So, you know, Darren talked a little bit before about this idea that critical consciousness is is your ability to analyze oppressive social forces, your feelings of political agency, to make change, and your commitment to engaging in action that that actually makes change. And so to give just one example, I mean, this is sort of a political agency example. One of the schools in our study had a civics class in the 11th grade. And as part of this 11th grade civics class, the students were assigned to look at the school handbook and identify a policy that they perceived to be unjust or unfair. Mm-hmm. And, and the, so the students in the class of 2017 that we were following, they chose the school's technology policy. They felt like the school's technology policy was outdated and wasn't allowing students to make use of technology to, you know, to support their learning. And so what the students then did, you know, over a course of several weeks as part of this civics class, 
was to engage in research to support their contention that this was an unjust policy. And then they used the research that they did to propose a new policy. They sort of developed the language for a new policy for technology that might guide the school. And then as a group, they put that research and that new policy proposal together into a presentation, which they then made to the school's faculty. The faculty listened very seriously to the proposal and actually then responded with you know, a formal letter to their students saying, hey, we think this was a very compelling presentation. Here are some additional questions that we have about the proposal you're putting forth. The students had to sort of go back into the, the research to respond to those questions. And ultimately, and I think this was a really important move by the, by the faculty at this school, the faculty ultimately voted to change their technology policy wow. for the remainder of the school year to this proposal that the students had put forth with the idea that if it goes smoothly, this will become our permanent policy. And if not, we'll go back to the drawing board. And I can tell you that the students in this school, from our interviews with them, from our observations, felt incredibly empowered by this opportunity to make a change within their school community. I think that when we started the project, Darren and I were not sure that the opportunity to make a change within your school community would feel meaningful to young people. And I think that one of our learnings as we as we kind of went along was that for young people, like your school community is as real a community as any other community that you're a part of. And the, the opportunity to sort of make a change within that community absolutely felt transferable to them in terms of their feelings of agency to, to make a change. So, so that's one example. And I think, you know, let me, let me turn to Darren to, to offer another one. I'm going to choose an out-of-school change example. Um, one of the schools that we were working at, a European country had essentially sort of created a travel ban to the neighborhood in which the school was located because it was deemed to be, I don't know, dangerous or whatever, right? And so the school and the students found out about this and the school organized the opportunity to both do research about how they came to these conclusions, right? And then ultimately, and more importantly, then actually physically went to that consul and met with, you know, the head consul person of that country and persuaded them or tried to persuade, I can't even remember if they were successful, it almost doesn't matter to me, to change this policy and to get that person to reimagine how they would think about that community. So I thought that was a really great one. Another one, just real quick, that was similar, was in a different school that did year-long senior projects um, where they were, they were supposed to be very community engaged. At this particular school, the community was going through gentrification. It had a long history of being sort of a, a hotbed of culture for you know folks of color. It was going through some changes. So it was a real issue for that community in which the school was embedded. And so for the student senior project, which in which they spend a year, basically, a whole year basically doing research about the topic and then organizing some form of action to do around the research. So the student was doing research around gentrification and gentrification in that community and then ultimately facilitated a gentrification community like panel out you know in the community with community members with leaders from the community who were she was facilitating this conversation with and so those examples where students were able to take the things that they learned the, the knowledge the behaviors the dispositions and move it outside the walls of their schools were also very exciting to us especially because it requires a disposition as a school as school cultures as school leaders to think of schools as situated within communities, not separate from them, and giving students the skills to be able to walk outside the walls of the school and still be doing important learning that's scaffolded in a way that will help them develop both the skills and the will to do this right. work. 
And maybe I would just add, just because I think I think a couple of the examples we offered might feel like really big examples, you know, examples that are sort of part of a whole unit or sort of part of a, a whole senior project. I also think that we saw this work taking place in much smaller ways. So in fact, at the school that Darren was talking about that engaged with the consul general of a European country to, to <laughs> sort of push back against a travel warning, we also saw in a ninth grade humanities class in that same school, the students were studying colonialism. And the final assessment was to write a letter to one of your elected representatives expressing your opinion about what the United States' relationship to Puerto Rico should be, like what would be a just relationship. You know, and the students wrote their letters you know, and engaged in that process, sent them off. And, and of course, when you write to an elected representative, you get a response. Like, and you, you know, somebody in that elected representative's office really does take the time to respond and to pay attention to this outreach. And I think the students also felt really empowered by, by that much smaller example of social action, where they sort of now knew who their elected representatives were, how do you reach out to them, if you reach out to them, you will sort of get some interaction from that representative. And I think even sort of a smaller example like that was an example of ways in which schools in our project were actively sort of working to, to develop the skills and mindsets to do critical consciousness work with their students. I mean, what were the students' reactions to this? Because like hearing this, I think, gosh, this should just be happening everywhere, which I know it's not. Yeah, that's a great question. I think we were really trying to take a student-centered approach to this work, and so we were really interested and trying to understand this through the, the eyes and the perceptions of the students. And so what's really interesting about this work is that it was longitudinal. We did watch, we start watching the students from ninth grade through 12th grade. And so some of the students, we got to, you know, like we had subsets of students that we interviewed and watched and observed over time. So we would see change, some of which we would see students who maybe early on in their school careers, like, didn't think there was a lot of injustice or you know unfairness in the world. And then by the end, they had like complex ways of understanding the ways that there was. And so some of this was about just seeing change. In terms of how they were reacting to like how they felt about doing this kind of schooling, some students loved it. It gave them language for things that they were experiencing. It affirmed, right, their experience. But, you know, some students might be like, this is just something I got to do. Right. And so for some students, the senior projects were like, yes, this is a chance. Right. For other students, it's like, I have to do a senior project because I have to do a senior project. Right. <laughs> and I would think that really speaks to some of the different approaches and focus that the schools had. I'll let Scott say a little bit more about that. I think it's part of the story of the research. I mean, one thing that jumps out at me right away is that at one of the schools, the school that we were talking about that that had those senior projects where over the course of senior year, every single senior had to sort of plan and then execute a social action project. One of the fascinating things about sort of watching that was that because every single senior in the school was doing it, they basically needed to enlist younger students to, to help them carry out mm. the projects. And so what was really fascinating to us, and as Darren mentioned, we interviewed young people sort of in each year of high school. And as they sort of went along, like, yes, the senior year project was meaningful to a high percentage of students. Just as often, we heard them tell us about their participation in an older student's project as something that was really impactful and meaningful. And so, so it was really interesting to us to, A, sort of see that, that this senior year project had this ripple effect that kind of permeated the entire school culture, like to the point that ninth graders would be telling us, oh, I'm already thinking about, they called these projects the Change the World Projects, and, and ninth graders would be telling mm -hmm. us, oh, I'm already thinking about a good Change the World project. And it was because they were sort of watching the older students in their school carry out these projects, and they were, in fact, participating alongside them. And so opportunities for students to teach other students is very, very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And we saw that play out in different schools in, in a number of different ways. 
I would say another really fascinating way in which students responded to this was when students started to take the skills and the dispositions they were learning about, you know, resisting, you know, oppressive forces or racism and other things, and then applying that to the school itself, mm. right? Scott gave a great example where one school, like, really created that space, which we, would, which we would advocate for, created a space for students to critique the school, make reasonable suggestions for change. But oftentimes, what happened a lot is that, you know, students would be like, well, hey, like, this school, like, let's look at all the teachers in the school, or looking at their racial demographics. Or we had one particular class where they had an African-American literature class. The school was doing this on purpose as part of its mission. And this class, which was predominantly black students, you know, named that we have a white male teacher teaching this African-American lit class and just named that dynamic as like that, you know, let's talk about that. Is this, is this OK? In that particular case, the teacher leader of that school, rather than like squashing that and saying, hey, no, no, we're the teacher, we're the authority. We know what we're doing here. Right. Don't worry about racism. Right. They said, OK, like, let's think about this. And we saw that teachers practice who was really very well-intentioned and a great teacher to start with. Wasn't doing anything, like, horribly wrong, but the intentionality of reaching out to the students, right, letting them critique the space, and then watch how the teacher changed his approach moving forward, you know, trying to be more sensitive to this, you know, naming his own positionality, naming the student's positionality, right, you know, was really powerful to see because part of the story is that some of these schools were just doing this, right? And we were just there to see how they were doing it. But some schools moved and changed. Mm. If we look at that specific African-American literature course in that specific school taught by a white teacher to a predominantly African-American group of students, I mean, watching the dialogue that the students asked for and the teacher sort of made space for was really powerful. The students were reading James Baldwin in the class. And the students sort of as a group felt like the teacher's his kind of take on Baldwin and Baldwin's sort of outlook on racial dynamics in the United States was too optimistic. And they sort of pushed for a different reading of Baldwin. And so really watching this type of dialogue take place between the teachers and students, it felt like some of the richest learning that we watched take place. That was a great example of being open to just stating the obvious and working through the challenges in that and uncomfortableness of it, really, I guess. Right. And I think it's also a great example of the dispositions of like being a reciprocal teacher. So in other words, like seeing your students as reciprocal teachers and learners, even well-intentioned teachers, if they see themselves as the authority, can be threatened by the notion of like students starting to say, hey, let's do things differently in here. For all teachers, and especially I think for white teachers, having a reasonably reciprocal relationship with your students as teachers and learners will help just in the way of becoming a learner of your students so that you can better teach them. Another sort of fertile moment for critical consciousness work was when teachers sort of got personal with their students. And for teachers of color, we observed examples where an African-American male teacher in one of the schools we were studying talked to his students about being pulled over by police Mm -hmm. officers one evening while he was picking up takeout food, you know, for no particular reason. And he sort of talked to the students about that experience in a really straightforward way. Another teacher of color in our study um, the students were in her class were doing narrative writing, and the teacher had sort of put together her own narrative writing example about an important moment in her life. And she wrote about this moment in her first weeks of graduate school where she, um, she, a teacher of color, asked to join a study group, and the white students in the study group said no because no one here thinks you're going to graduate. And mm. she talked about the sting of that experience and her sort of response to that experience. And, and those were really powerful, like fraught but powerful moments in the classroom where I felt like a lot of learning 
was taking place. And so it underscored for us that teachers of color have a powerful opportunity to do critical consciousness work around issues of race with their with their students. But as we've sort of been talking about, we also think that there are opportunities for white teachers to be also personal with their students about their own experiences of whiteness and to be reflective about their about their whiteness and how that impacts their teaching and learning and their lives and their movement through the world. That teacher leading the African-American literature class was a really terrific example of that kind of reflective teacher open to really engaging in dialogue about what his what his whiteness meant for himself and his students. Were there things that you saw that just didn't seem to work? We had one school, predominantly African-American school, actually help students practice certain activism skills as they brought these students to one or two rallies that were about funding for state education and, you know, making it more equitable so that their school and other schools could get more funding. And so this was a school that definitely let them practice those skills in that way. And this predominantly, you know, black school that had predominantly white teachers and predominantly white leadership, after the firing of a particular staff member, the students just had enough and they were just saying that the teacher staff is way too white and we want to make a statement about this. And so they essentially planned a, a walkout of the school. You know, from our perspective, again, we are excited about opportunities for students to reasonably practice skills to, you know, navigate and challenge you know, oppression. And so what basically happened is the students organized a walkout Mm. and the school reacted very punitively. In other words, students were going to be marked absent and therefore students who were marked absent weren't going to get access to bathrooms. They weren't going to get school lunch. They weren't going to get a ride home. They were locked out. They weren't going to be able to participate in sports that afternoon. It was just a complete shutdown of this process, which could have been handled really, really differently. We, we, we were in other schools, one other school in particular, that the students wanted to do a walkout, and it was controversial. I think it was around our current administration's policies, around immigration, other things, right? And, you know, parents were worried, you know, either because they had their own different political views or just because they were worried about the safety of the students. And this, and this school reacted very differently. They took many, many different measures to ensure the, the safety of the students, to make it optional, you know, to not punish students for being involved in this work. Quite the contrary, they were very happy to help, you know, at least facilitate it as a teachable moment um, without necessarily advocating any particular political views. And so, yes, I think we have to understand that when we're doing this schooling for critical consciousness work, because racism is so pervasive and pernicious, students are going to see it happening in their schools. We need not take it personally because it's not necessarily a reflection on our intentions or things like that. It's just the way that this system goes. And we need to think of an outcome of schooling as having students to be civically engaged. And so, like, to shut down opportunities for students to be civically engaged in ways that are reasonable, in ways that, you know, protect their safety and other things, is sort of counter to the purpose of schooling for us. Mm. That's a big one because I know there was a lot of walkouts planned and it was controversial. What do you do when your students want to plan a walkout? Do you shut it down or do you allow it to happen? So... Sounds like from your work, you allow it to happen in a smart, responsive, constructed way where there's something to learn from it. We don't want to sound naive in the sense that we 
absolutely recognize that when students are planning a walkout, that is stressful for school leaders and educators in the sense that there are safety concerns, there are you know, sort of academic learning concerns, and so on and so forth. And so it's not our contention that, that this is sort of not a challenging moment for a school leader or an educator. We would hope that school leaders would also recognize that, that this is a learning moment and that students are doing something that's, that's meaningful and important to them. And it certainly seems worthwhile to us to engage the students as mature civic agents in sort of responding to this. You know, Darren kind of referenced that there was one school that that seemed to sort of blow it, like in responding purely punitively and not sort of recognizing there was opportunities for learning and dialogue and discussion on everybody's part. And then we watched another school have a really, really different response to a student walkout where the school leaders sort of first and foremost made sure that this was going to be safe. And they really engaged in kind of negotiation and discussion with the students to ensure safety in terms of where the walkout was taking place and when it was going to happen and so on and so forth, and then sort of engaged with the students as responsible sort of community members. And again, I think that was a school where the students came away from the experience feeling feeling really empowered about the experience and really excited about, about the opportunity to be a civic actor in a community they cared about. And it definitely doesn't need to be successful either. I find that when it's not successful, that's actually even better because then the teaching continues and the real lifeness of it is there. And so I would also hope that, you know, educators who are, you know, earnestly trying to do this don't see it as like, and therefore, and they must, and the students also must get what they want too, right? Because that's part of it might be, as we saw in one of these schools, part of it might be they might get it or they might not as a negotiation. The real life is about how is the process. I mean, it sounds like a lot of this is really about embracing everything as a learning moment and being open to it for educators and school leaders. I think sometimes folks think about this critical conscious work as extra or Mm. even potentially a distraction from students' academic development. But I think I would say two things about that. So one, you know, one of the principles of the schools we were studying, she sort of explained that one of the reasons critical consciousness work was so important to her is that she herself Mm -hmm. was a woman of color. She was a black woman. And she sort of explained that she needed this sort of critical conscious messaging to be a part of her own schooling in high school and college for the work itself to feel meaningful for her and to, to be able to contend with the racism that she was experiencing in the various communities in which she was learning. And she felt like her students needed that critical consciousness work in order to have the resilience to continue to move forward with their academics and with their learning and with their striving. And then our research actually supports that. By virtue of studying students over four years of high school, we collected data on their critical consciousness development from the beginning of ninth grade to the end of 12th grade. And then when we asked the schools for students' academic achievement data at the end of high school, and what we found was that students who demonstrated the steepest growth in their critical consciousness over four years of high school, that correlated with their cumulative grade point average. So in other words, the students who demonstrated the biggest gains in critical consciousness over four years of high school were also the students who finished high school with the highest grade point averages. And and there's a lot of potential explanations about why that might be, and this wasn't a causal study. But I think that that principle I just referenced before was was getting it right when she Mm -hmm. explained that the young people who sort of were more critically conscious or becoming more critically conscious felt an additional sort of sense of purpose and meaning in their academic striving because they had a sense of what they wanted to do with this academic learning and with this education they were obtaining. And so so Darren actually, I think, has done a good job sort of all the way through this project of kind of reminding our research team and reminding educators with whom we're working that this critical consciousness work is not something that's separate from from students' academic lives, but rather it's something that's enriching and informing students' academic lives. So for people listening who might be educators, they're thinking, I don't do any of this or I don't really know how to get started, but I'd like to incorporate some of this into my classroom. 
Where do you get started with something? Of course, it depends on what you teach. But I think you can think about small ways to begin. Quite a number of the schools that we were studying had their students in ninth or 10th grade reading Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. And The Bluest Eye is this book that, in a really interesting and engaging way, helps students kind of understand the way in which dominant standards of beauty influence the world in which we live in and influence the ways in which we we move through the world. Those messages about dominant standards of beauty are racialized, you know, there's gender implications, and and it was really powerful to watch sort of ninth and 10th graders be sort of offered through this novel this framework for making sense of a force in the world that they experience and that they recognize, but maybe they didn't have a name for. Even in just sort of the reading of Toni Morrison's A Bluest Eye, you could see students' critical consciousness developing. That work wasn't taking place separate and apart from developing students' analytic skills. It was students applying those analytic skills to this issue of dominant standards of beauty. The English teachers out there who are sort of familiar with the Common Core know that there are all these opportunities within the Common Core to engage students in in learning to sort of take one text to make sense of another text. And so, you know, quite a number of the schools that we were looking at would have students read a text like The Bluest Eye, but then they would give them an informational text like Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And students would sort of use that text to make sense of what was happening in the novel. That's a really small example of how sort of critical consciousness work can take root. But I think it was a really powerful example. To the, the educators who are starting to do this work, I would start in one of those domains that you feel you're most comfortable teaching yourself or is most relevant to your class or your discipline. For some of us, it might lend itself towards a Toni Morrison or something that's textual, something that's like, let's read something to flex our analytic skills, right? For other classes, it's going to be about like, okay, yes, we recognize that there's different forms of racism. What does that mean for how we position ourselves, uh, comport ourselves in a space to help navigate those pitfalls. Others people are going to feel really comfortable getting their students doing something, projects, action, right? So I would start with the place that I think you feel the most comfortable doing yourself and that your school culture allows. Scott Sider is an associate professor at Boston College. Darren Graves is an associate professor at Simmons University. They are the authors of Schooling for Critical Consciousness, Engaging Black and Latinx Youth in Analyzing, Navigating, and Challenging Racial Injustice. I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast, produced by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. 